Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, our investigation, our truth, what happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots. A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Episode 2, A Game of Catch-Up, Fire Wins. Hello, my name's Deborah Finkston. My son, Andrew Ashcraft, was lead sawyer on the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew. Hi, I'm Doug Harwood. I'm a firefighter. I worked on Granite Mountain for a few years, and I had uh, quite a few friends on that crew. And we don't want to forget our audio girl, Shelby, who helps us and has made us do this introduction, by the way, twice. (laughs) (laughs) In this series of episodes, you'll be joining us as we talk about what we know, what we've discovered, and what's been said about the deaths of the Granite Mountain crew. There's a lot of misinformation out there, and we want to clear that up. We will be covering what happened on the June 28th, 29th, and 30th, plus the events in the days, weeks, months, and years that followed it. We hope to cover as much as possible, but know that there still is a lot of unknowns. We hope to actually cover that. How? By showing that the first investigation was completely unacceptable and pleading for future investigations to be handled completely differently. Know that this is a very emotional and it's really important to us. There will be tears, there will be some raw language, so please be aware of that. There's also a lot of wildland fire lingo and tons of acronyms. We'll try our best to explain them as we go. In episode one, we went back to the very first day, June 28, 2013. If you haven't already listened to episode one, please take the 36 minutes um, because it's a fast recap. The first domino that happened in this fire was a lightning strike on the evening of Friday, June 28th. There were extreme pre-existing conditions in Yarnell. The fuels were extremely dry. In March 2013, there was a report released by the State of Arizona Department of Forestry specifically stating how bad the fuels were in Yarnell and that it was a tinderbox. Those that arrived that night couldn't even get through the fuels. They had to rely on aviation, not ground at that point, to get to the fire. This area was an extreme explosive fire event. That's their words, not ours. A Type 3 incident commander went out on the evening of Friday, June 28th to meet with a Bureau of Land Management duty officer. The recon at that time stated that the fire was two to eight acres and that their strategies tomorrow would be building a pool of resources and there was concern about crews making a direct attack because they could not find a good way in or out of the fire. To start off, Doug, we know that there's some confusion between um, referring to an IC3 commander and the um, Serious Accident Investigation Report referring to an IC4 commander. What's this confusion? What's going on here? Well, it seems like um, the incident commander on that fire that night was an IC3, which he's uh, qualified as. It's kind of a more complicated fire than an IC4. But if you're an IC3 commander, incident commander type 3, you can also be an IC type 4 or an IC type 5. Those are kind of lesser complicated. 
So it's a, it's a ladder. You're an IC5 and then an IC4 and then an IC3. Right. And Yarnell Fire was large enough. They sent out an IC3 commander. Two of them. Yeah. Two of them. That's right. Because the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM um, representative that he met out there was also a type three. Right. But the only one, there's only going to be one IC. He was just another qualified person that could help. Right. He was there to help. DIC, yes. So what's the confusion with the serious accident investigation report? Well, in this report, it seems like they're trying to make the type three incident commander when he made the decision to ask for another type three incident commander to come relieve him because his work to rest time was up. Which we were going to be talking about in a little bit. Right. It seems like they're trying to make that the time that he was actually ordering a type two team, which is not the case. He was, he was, he was ordering someone to come take his position because he was running out of time and he wouldn't be able to do his position anymore. This, it seems like they're trying, this uh, serious accident investigation report is trying to cover somebody's ass or cover something up because they're reordering the, order, the, the way that things came in through dispatch. So they're making it look, and I agree with you, I, I believe it's a complete cover-up. You know, no hold bars there. I think the serious accident investigation reports is a piece of trash. But that being said, they are reporting him as an IC4, even though he was an IC3, and that was an IC3 fire. He went out there, and it, so it makes him look like when he orders an IC3 commander, oh, look, he's stepping up, he's smart, he's stepping up to another commander, when in reality, he's just asking for relief. Right. He's an IC3 asking for an IC3 because he's worked too much. Right. Okay. And they're making it, you know, hours difference between when the, the Type 2 team was actually ordered. So the times aren't even represented well. Yes. Okay. Well... Interesting. <laughs> Let's move on with June 28th. There's a lot that happened on that day. The first real attack at the fire started on that Saturday. Sadly, they never once had control. Um, it, the, the fire had the upper hand the whole time. Aviation was requested, but then set away, forgotten or denied. Um, we'll expose the confusion and the haphazard way that this fire was fought. And no complexity analysis was ever done. Doug, what is a complexity analysis? Well, it's a, it's a form that they have set up where you can uh, just go through and just simply mark checkboxes. If these conditions exist on that fire and a certain number of them exist, then you're moving up in a different level, a higher level of fire command needs to be attached to that is fire. Is it required? Do people do this all of the time? Is this something that's automatic? It's supposed to be done every time there's a change in the complexity of the fire. Okay, so... It's pretty much a constantly evolving, changing document that needs to be definitely done before you make a decision to, to dispatch a team, okay. a Type 2 team. Okay. Or a Type 3 team, I believe, also. Okay, so... What are some of the things that are on it? Just some of the things that were on this fire already that we've already talked about. There was exposures of personnel to unusually hazardous conditions. There were multiple fixed-wing aircraft involved in, and anticipated. There was potential for public evacuations. There's terrain that adversely affected performance of um, the tactical resources. Right, because they already said they don't want to send a hand crew in. Yep. Performance of firefighting resources affected by um, fatigue. We already talked about the IC's time on the fire. More than one jurisdiction involved. That was one of the first things that came up with this. Well, he's um, meeting 
here's a state of Arizona employee meeting a Bureau of Land Management. We've already got a couple agencies right. going. Right. Structures are threatened. It's in the urban interface. Um, the predicted fire behavior dictates the is going to make it indirect control uh, strategy. They can't even get the people in on the fire. Fuels are extremely dry, susceptible to rapid um, explosive spread. Um, current winds and predicted winds of 20 miles an hour. Fuel moisture of 8% or below. And severe weather predicted for the next two operational periods. That's 13 easy check marks. I'm going easy. There's a lot of others that are kind of iffy. They could, they could also have been check marked. It only takes seven to order a Type 2 team. So they almost have double the things that they would need to get a Type 2 team on this fire. Okay, so for those of you that don't know what this looks like, it's truly two pieces of paper with lines that, um, as Doug did, he just put an X next to it. And it says yes or no. It is a basic quick form so that somebody can do it super fast. And then at the very top, it says the guidelines and it, you know, one through three, you do this, four through six, you do that, seven to 10, you do that. And you have how many, did you say? 13. 13. So we're and that's being, that's being easy. There's more we could probably check. Okay, so we're at the top of this um, incident complexity analysis at the start of this whole mess. Yep. Okay? Fascinating. Thanks, Doug. The temperatures in Arizona that day were supposed to be extremely hot. It was reported to reach 116 in Phoenix. The fire was never adequately staffed. Um, they're, they're just, they didn't have enough people on that fire from the very beginning. Now, you and I have a big discussion about that. Um, I hear it repeatedly that incident commands are never fully staffed right away and still a fight fire no matter what. And I believe that that's a bunch of hooey. I have voiced it time and time again. If a hotshot crew, if aviation can get there, if an IC commander can get there, then they can get everybody there or wait for them. But why is that? What? Well, it's kind of a different mindset when you're doing initial attack activity. That means it's the very beginning of the fire. It shouldn't be more than a 24-hour period. You can catch that fire quickly, put it out, and be done with it. This fire is stretching into another realm where they should have be able to get more people or have it ordered in that way, right. like you're saying. The other factor that I think people are missing is if this fire wasn't anywhere near structures, they probably would be waiting for the right amount of people. They would be waiting for the, the, the resources that they needed before they attacked it. Okay, so the sheer fact that this fire is in a wildland urban interface, which is most fires now, it didn't used to be, but most fires in a wildland urban interface, because structures were starting to get, um, you know, they're yeah. close, things are starting to happen a little faster. You can already see in this fire there's the pressure. Even there's pressure to get the fire contained or worked on. Because okay. there's structures there. And they're going to say that there's no pressure and that shouldn't be a thing. And yeah, it shouldn't be. Well, we're going to show that that was a bunch of boohoo, right? Right. right. Yeah. Um, but again, why do you think it's different that if this was a, a wildland fire in the middle of nowhere, they would wait until the IC command? Why would they wait? Because it's safer to wait for your well, IC command? It, it would also depend if it was an initial attack or if this is, a, is an ongoing fire. Okay. If it's initial attack, they're not going to necessarily wait. If they think they can handle it quickly, they're going to send the resources that they need. And someone's going to be IC of that fire still, but it might just be the, the captain of an engine crew right. or the superintendent of a hotshot crew, if that's the only resources that are going to be there. 
But as the fire grows and they start ordering, they realize this is getting bigger than we, we can handle, they start ordering these teams to come. Okay. And they might be still doing a little bit of work on some part of the fire, mm-hmm. which I know is something that you're not I'm not thrilled with, with that, no. <laughs> I, I, until, and, until a safety officer is on this fire, I do not believe a crew should move. And they always say the same thing. I know everybody on the fire is a safety officer. That's what they oh, tell yes. us. Oh, yes. Well, but. you know what? That's not true. <laughs> that is so not true. Take it from somebody that worked eight years in a crash investigation. Um, no, that's not true. Not everybody is a safety officer, but you're right. That's what they'll say. But again, let's, we'll save that discussion for too many people wearing too many hats for another time. But a safety officer is there to watch out for crews. And until that safety officer is there, I do not believe anybody should move. So we're on this fire, and it's never fully staffed. And it's certainly not at this point. Right. It's hot out. And the plan was to move hand crews in and to move them in with a helicopter. They were having a hard time finding ways to get to the fire, so they're going to fly them in. Okay. So um, there was concern. Uh, we talked about risks from weather, mainly lightning. You don't want to be in these fuels that were predicted to be super ready to go um, with lightning. We and know this weather fires all along the ridge too, which is exactly where the lightning would be. High up, okay. yes. Um, we have BLM. Um, they have done on, on this next day, they've flown back over the fire and they say that it's at about eight acres now. Um, and Please, those of you listening, remember that number. They're saying that it's at eight acres at this point. Um, Their initial attack, their initial plan was to send six firefighters from the Lewis crew up to the fire. They were going to helicopter them up and drop them off. And then they were going to make sure to pull them down at 1530, which for us lay people, (laughs) I I need to know the time. It's 3.30 p.m. because they were going to pull them down because of that risk for lightning. So we're going to... Helicopter, six people up to fight this fire. Yeah. And at six or 6.51 a.m., the seats were requested for retardant drops on the north and south side. Um, and they're supposed to leave the west and east flanks alone. But these drops didn't start until mid-morning. So there's quite a bit of time where the fire is just doing its own thing without the help of the seat drops. And the seats, again, were those single-engine aircraft, small planes that drop a little bit of retardant. Um, the IC requests the helicopter to shuttle the crew in at 10:11, and they're waiting for the large helicopter that that delays the initial attack. Nobody can get on the fire because they're waiting for this helicopter to fly them up there. So they have the Lewis crew is standing there waiting. Um, 10 o'clock, they request the helicopter. So the fire is burning all night long, burning the morning till 10, and they're waiting for a big enough helicopter to move them up. Um, so then 11 o'clock. The Bureau of Land Management helicopter finally moves the crews up to the ridge, and they're there to start the handline. And a handline is just, it sounds like they were probably going direct on the fire. That means they're following the edge of the fire, where the fire is still burning, probably with the seat drops, and with his hand crew making um, line, taking it down, cutting all the brush and stuff down to mineral soil, um, and just following the black edge, which is what the fire has already burned, compared to the green side, which is what it hasn't burned yet. Okay, so I've said in my introductions that uh, my son Andrew was a lead sawyer. He had a chainsaw. What are a couple of the other tools that a hand crew would have? Uh, there's the Pulaski's, shovels, McLeod's. Uh, Pulaski's kind of like an axe with a hoe on the other end. 
There's also a rhino. It's a pretty popular tool. And it's kind of like a, just a hoe and also has a little spike on the other end. Just for stuff that you can, you know, you can pull the, um, the brush away. You can pull the, the grass away and you can get in between rocks and stuff. So the whole idea is to basically take any vegetation that's on the ground and get rid of it so that the fire doesn't have any fuel. Right. Can't burn anything else. Okay. Got it. Um, well, at lunch, things must have been moving a little bit forward. The um, IC commander sent engines home uh, mid-afternoon. And probably because the fight at this point, they were you know, putting fuel crews in. They were putting the hand crews in to fight. And they had already stated they couldn't get to the fire. So these engines sitting there might not have been... Yeah, I don't feasible. think these were the type of engines or the type of crews that they were going to send up in a helicopter. Okay. So they were just not really useful to that fire at that time. Okay, so at 12.25 it states um, that retardant drops had secured the south and the west flanks of the fire. So they sent the seats back to the Prescott, Arizona, the Prescott Airport where they were refueling. They sent them back. And also, IC Command reports to dispatch that the fire is now at two acres. So it supposedly this fire went from eight acres to two acres by this point. And then all of a sudden at 1442, which is 142 in the afternoon, the IC command, he releases this, um, the seats, the small engines from the fire. And he also at, um, releases an ATGS. What's that acronym, Doug? Uh, that's for air attack. Air attack is uh, it's basically a division supervisor in the air, the person who's going to take control of all the air resources and tell them where they needed to be dropping. They also are a good communication for people on the ground. If they want to drop a retardant in a certain spot, then they're asking the, the air attack to do that for them, and then he lines out the planes and gets it there. So then basically this IC commander only has the crew up on the fire fighting. That's it. Well, he'd be in like his direct thing would be the crew up on the fire, whoever's in charge of that crew. Right. And then he would also be going directly with the uh, air attack. Right, which he's released. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At 3 p.m., there's another weather report that comes in to the IC. Um, this is dispatch calling him to tell him uh, of weather that's happening actually all over the state. He's getting updates from dispatch about other fires all over. So he's not only the incident commander of this fire, but it seems like he's having to run or make decisions on other fires all over the state. It's just kind of an odd thing when you're the incident commander of a fire, it seems like you should be concentrating there on the single job, not. So do you think that that adds to confusion? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and so a, a workload that's unnecessary, really. Right. Know. Because, I mean, what does it matter to him what fire is happening miles away? Hopefully or, there's other incident commanders on those other <laughs> fires or someone else needs to take that over, yeah. Good gosh, you would hope so. Yeah. And then at 3.40, uh, he ends up releasing uh, the BLM brush engine and the People's Valley fire engine just because the same reason as we said before, they can't fight the fire from the ground where they're at. They need a helicopter and they're not uh, available. Um, so that was it. Um, 15.40, 3.40 p.m., and then it shows um, in dispatch that there's a notification at 1600, 4 p.m., 20 minutes later, that this the fire activity increases. So we have got a big increase, and 
My mouth is dry. How are you doing, Doug? Um, let's take a break. Let's take a break. You have been listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you are finding this presentation intriguing. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Thank you, and back to the podcast. Okay, so it's 1600, 4 p.m. What does that mean, Doug? That's just a dangerous time in any fire. That's if they're going to, if they're going to, get bigger, start having bad fire behavior, you know, 2 o'clock to 6 p.m., that's just the, the window when it happens. So it's kind of like the hottest time of the day. Absolutely. The sun's been baking on it. It's heated up to the, the hottest, gonna, hottest, driest it's going to get. The winds might change a little bit, especially if you're in monsoon season. They're build, those clouds are building above you. So in reality, hindsight, maybe he shouldn't have released everybody. He should have maybe waited until after four, is that normal or no? Does well, if they weren't, they weren't going to be useful on oh, that ridge, okay. you know, it would have to burn a long ways before they could have used okay. engines. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just the fact that the, that's a, a normal time, time. When the fire is going to get big. Okay. Um, well, the Arizona State Forestry Department did not declare this fire had escaped initial attack. Nothing on this fire is proactive. From this point forward, with the Arnell Hill fire, everything is reactive. Um, IC Command is reacting to everything. The fire now has control at this point. Um, by 4-10-16-10, the IC Commander requests the seats back. He wants air attack back. Um, but dispatch sends only one. They're gonna hold the, another one for another fire. So what he has released, he's only getting half of what he had back. Yeah, the fires are, fires are probably growing in other places too. It's just the time of day when you lose all your resources and you're not going to be able to get them back. Um, the fire jumps the road to, on the east side. Um, the IC states that uh, the containment's been problematic, and then he orders a heavy uh, helitanker. Uh, so a large, it's basically a large helicopter that can drop a, a large amount of um, retardant. At... 5.30, 17.30, 13 firefighters assigned to contain the east side of the fire. So they moved from their other area that they were working on to just working on that east side of the fire. So a lot of things are happening at 5.30. Right. And so let's mark this. The, the crew coordinator estimates that the fire has grown. It's now six acres. So they said two to eight, and now they're narrowing it down to six, I guess. <laughs> okay. But the activity is getting worse for The them. activity is getting worse. It's 530. Also, a big decision happens at 530. Um, the BLM rep goes to the IC commander and asks him if he wants the BLM guy to take over the fire. Um, but the IC commander, um, he declines. And in reality, that's another domino. This IC commander is tired. He's busy, things are getting out of control. Um, both the BLM and um, the IC commander, both type three, um, things are starting to fall apart here. Things are gonna get pretty um, out of control rapidly. And then at the same time, the Lewis crew that they had helicoptered out to the fire, they run out of gas. They no longer have gas for um, their chainsaws. So another domino falls. We've got um, some more activity happening. And in this fuel type, you can't really do anything if you don't have chainsaws. You're just going to be ineffective. It's all brush, and there's 
you're going to need a saw to get through any of it. Okay, so they're basically then sitting on their laurels. Yeah. Okay. Um, then we have two hours between 5.30 and about 7.30. Fire behavior and complexity continues to grow. Um, the IC voices concerns that now there is big threats. There is a community out there named People's Valley and also the community of Yarnell. And he states to dispatch the IC commander that there will be, there are threats to People's Valley and Yarnell in 25 to 48 hours. But again, no complexity analysis was done. Again, they didn't go through that form that Doug talked about earlier. And there's been obvious changes in the fire. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Obvious change. And the humidity is now at 12%. And at so 542, 1742 dispatch is declining more air resources due to weather. So now there's thunder and lightning throughout the state and around the airports where the, the air resources are coming from, they're not able to take off. At 543, one minute later, dispatch offers a VLAT, which is a very large air tanker. I guess this one was flying out of Albuquerque, so that could take off. But they said he only had 10 minutes to make a decision. Okay, so, so we're stressing. We've yeah. got a fire running out of control. We have no resources. The BLM rep says, do you want me to take over? He says, no. Dispatch says, okay, you have 10 minutes to make a decision on this dude. Yeah. They never gave him a reason why, but I guess the 10 minutes was a something. They, maybe there was a storm coming in there or something. Um, so he gets back to him in seven minutes and says that they do not want the very large air tanker. Well, you know, and in reality, the very large air tanker could have put this fire out pretty quickly. They huge. They they hold a lot of fuel. Uh, not a lot of fuel. I'm sorry, a lot of retardants. Yes. Right. They can make huge drops. They can do a lot of damage to a fire. You can't expect any fire to go out with just retardant. You need people right. there to. Put okay. it out. You'd need chainsaws still to make some sort right, of Right, but line. they don't have chainsaws. Right. right? They ran out of gas. Right. So um, he discusses that with the BLM rep and Air Attack. Should, you know, but again, they only have seven minutes. They talk about it for seven minutes. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, the very large air tanker had been around for a while, but I don't know how much it had been used by these individuals. So I don't know if they knew what its capabilities were, right. what, what it could do, if they were worried that it would be too much for that fire? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay. We don't know what their decisions were. Yeah, we don't were. know. But, but in reality, that was another domino that fell here. So this whole time, from uh, 5.30 to basically 7.30, the fire continues to grow. <laughs> Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. The crew's sitting on their hands. No air attack. Yeah. Nobody can really decide what to do. 5.30, the IC ordered another IC3 to come out and take over the fire for the next day. This was because he was getting tired and his time, his work to rest ratio was coming up. It says right in the interviews, this wasn't because you were feeling uncomfortable with the complexity of the situation. And he answers, at that time, no, it was purely based on work to rest ratios. So this goes back to that interview or that uh, serious accident investigation report that we talked about earlier where they were trying to bend facts so that it sounds like they're ordering a team instead of just ordering one person to come take over his position. And th this is the spot when stuff is kind of a mess. He's also then notifying um, dispatch, hey, I'm, I've been working a lot of days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
and still no complexity analysis is done. They request three hotshot crews, um, Blue Ridge is ordered, Granite Mountain's ordered, and Arroyo Grande is ordered. Arroyo Grande never makes it to the fire, um, but they were ordered at that time. I think they had some mechanical issues, actually, yeah. yeah. Temperatures in the area are now over 100 degrees. Flames reported to be 10 to 20 feet and moving at a rate of spread of 5 to 10 chains per hour. A chain is 66 feet. That's an old uh, Forest Service logging term. So it'd be 330 to 660 feet an hour, basically about a tenth of a mile every hour. Um, and that's a fast rate of spread. Is it? I mean, yeah. it, it seems fast to me. It seems yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. Is that normal or is that pretty... In that fuel type with a little bit of wind and, yeah, it can It can, it move. can do. Yeah. Okay, so this, this fire is really moving. Then we have about 647. Um, the state uh, dispatches two structure group specialists, one to um, work the People's Valley and the other for Yarnell because, again they're predicting that the fire is going to be in these two communities and they're specifically concerned with Glen Alla which is a I would say subdivision of Yarnell but Yarnell is not very big so it's just a small little point of Yarnell and um, for the listeners please remember that please think about that because this area is going to become critical um, then at 738 we get another estimate of the fire and now they estimate it to be 100 acres. So between 5.30 and 7.30, this fire grows by 95 acres. That's, that's crazy. Um, the fire is reported to now be one mile away from People's Valley, so structures, and two and a half miles from Yarnell. Again, more structures. At 10 p.m., dispatch orders 14 engines, six water tenders, and two Type 2 hand crews, uh, two bulldozers, and numerous aircraft. Uh, type 2 hand crew is a little different than a um, hotshot crew. It's still a 20-person crew. They're just not quite as qualified and may not have all the um, equipment or capabilities of a hotshot crew. So even though this fire, we, we would think immediately they should have a Type 1 crew if they would have done a complexity analysis, they might have had a, a larger step up here. Yeah, and these, and these uh, dispatch orders are probably like the bare minimum type stuff that you would order for a, a type 2 team to okay. come. Okay. Well, um, I also noticed when I was looking over the serious accident investigation report, in here they throw in um, this sentence that says, and I quote, the IC commander notified the Yavapai County Sheriff's um, Office to prepare for reverse 911 calls in case of evacuation. Well, let me explain. I can't find a record of that anywhere. Um, was it an afterthought that they added into the report to make it look good? Um, is it um, true uh, that, that this happened? Um, maybe, but maybe again, if they had that um, com um, complex analysis done that they would have had it. But it, to me, it just seems like, it, again, one of those weird little afterthoughts they threw in there because um, it, 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 the evacuation will here tomorrow, or I'm sorry, not tomorrow, but about June 30th tomorrow here becomes quite a mess and adds to this fire. 
And once you start seeing the, the holes in this SAIR report, you start questioning a lot of stuff that they put in there. Well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you have a, an accident investigation report and you can prove that one thing is wrong, then it should be thrown into the trash can because it's not right. And we've shown quite a few things so far and we'll show more. So, so at uh, 11.40, a structured protection group uh, arrives on the fire. Uh, he's briefed, by, or he was told by the IC commander to determine the risks of the structures. Again, they're looking at risk of structures and no complexity analysis is completed. Uh, this, later, the structure protection group um, supervisor is given a, um, a briefing by the incident commander, and he's supposed to be the structure group protection for Glenn Ida. Another structure group protection comes along later, and he gets a briefing from the first structure group protection um, commander, not from uh, the IC, and he's supposed to be the in charge of People's Valley. So the two groups of uh, structure groups are quite a ways apart, but the fire is kind of threatening two different communities. Communities. And so we have one structure protection person getting a quick briefing from the IC commander. Then he's giving another quick briefing to the other structure protection guy. It's not like all three of them were forming a plan together and going there. And, and I will tell you, I am going to throw in my opinion right here. And I believe this is another key um, that structure now becomes more important than men. That protecting those houses, protecting those communities, the structures of those communities um, is more important than that crew that's sitting up on top of the ridge um, with no gas or any of the crews that are coming in uh, that wildland crews at this point, in my opinion, become an afterthought. Structure becomes the main thought here. So again, Glen Ida is a subdivision in Yarnell, and it's going to be a key location. We're going to talk about it later. Just keep that in mind. It's one of the subdivisions right along the edge of Yarnell. And another incident, another problem, another domino falling, there was no incident action plan. There was a plan. They were working on a plan, but there was never anything written down. And as fires grow, as the time goes by, um, when you move from an, uh, an initial attack fire to a, a fire that's going to be going for a while, you need to have that plan written. So they have no complexity analysis and now no incident action plan. And it might not be necessary up until this point, but from this point on they should have one. Okay. Yeah. There's, it's, they're describing abnormal active fire behavior all throughout the night. The fire is growing and growing. They can't tell how much because it's nighttime now. They can't get anybody on it. Um, and there's not really great briefings for resources coming in. They can't see at night. They don't know what they're going into. Basically, they're telling people, structure groups, to go in and check out their structures and find out what they're going to need for the next day. Is it normal, Doug, for like one person to come in and then another person to come in? Shouldn't it be, I don't know, a better plan to say, okay... Um, let's try our best to have everybody here by 9 p.m. and then do a large briefing? Or is that normal to just, when somebody shows up, you talk to them and then, you know, let that person talk to another person? It just seems like, you know, cans in a string. I don't know, it's me. Yeah, it's uh, probably definitely not the way they would want to have it done 
or anybody would want it done, but that's the way it's it's working out for them. Okay. I mean, the, the fire's just growing so much as they're sitting there, they, they're probably feeling like they have to get figuring stuff out. Yeah. Okay, okay. And again, there was no written incident action plan for June 30th. Well, you know, I was reading um, the ADOSH report on page 20 and 21, and for um, you listeners, you can Google the um, ADOSH report. It is also, if you go on, um, we have it listed, so you can go straight to the site if you go on to um, our, our site. Um, on page 20 and 21, it talks about pocket cards, and I don't want to get too much in depth, but a pocket card um, will let people know the fuels that they're fighting, um, it, it gives them some information, and they didn't even really do this. This incident command, this would have been another way that they could have really understood um, what trouble they were in. Um, even the pocket cards predicted on June 30th of 2013 that the energy release component was uh, going to be a nightmare. It was actually 119, and I'll, I'll let you guys read about that. It also stated um, that the um, prescribed um, area was just ready to go. And I know we've talked about time and time again how this area um, was a tinderbox. And again, um, Prescott National Forest also has another pocket card. And on that pocket, pocket card, if they would have used that during any briefing, they would have known that the fuel model of that day was so large and so rapid that even on that pocket card it says that fires in that area during this time would be difficult to manage. So no um, incident, I'm sorry, uh, incident action plan, no complexity analysis, which you're going to get sick of hearing us say, and then they didn't even use these pocket cards. And um, these pocket cards, the good crews will go through them and, and look at them anyways on their own. And Granite Mountain had that capability, and they would do that just mm -hmm. to see what the what fires were possible to do that day, wherever they were at. So, a good crew would do that, but it's it wasn't something that was being done by the command staff, which is so bad. so far that we've seen in these interviews. Right, right, right. And fatigue played a huge role here. It seems like um, we we've talked about how how long the uh, incident commander had been working. According to timesheets, he was working 28 days straight before June 28th, and he, he got called to the fire on the evening of the 28th, and the next morning he would be in Yarnell and start a shift that would last over 30 hours. Okay, so 28 days on the 28th, so that means 28th would have been his 29th day. So after 29 days straight of working, he was then working an additional 30 hours. Yeah, that's correct. And talk about the, that fatigue. He's also managing other fires while trying to manage this fire. They're calling him and giving him updates on weather reports, weather reports and, and what other fires are doing, just taking his mind out of the game for this fire. Oh, good Lord. Uh, um, that's just crazy. And I can see where um, that level of exhaustion, I mean, what I, I'm tired after you know five days a week work. <laughs> we right. were just talking with Shelby, our audio um, girl, how tired we get, and yet here's this person 
with people's lives in his hands. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we are at the end of June 29th. We have crews coming for June 30th. We have Granite Mountain contacted. They're coming in. Um, and so I think it's important we get to know who Granite Mountain is, this crew. Um, you know, Granite Mountain existed. How, how long, how, when were you on the crew, Doug? I was on the crew from 2004 to 2008. Okay, so Granite Mountain history, I think, will be another episode right. because it's really interesting what, what an interagency crew is. But in our next episode, we're going to have some Granite Mountain alumni to talk about this crew. And would this crew have been ready for <laughs> these fuels? I know that that's a big question. Were they in shape? Did they have certifications? You know, who were these guys? So I think it's interesting, and I think it's going to be good for our listeners to get to know who Granite Mountain was. Yeah, they're going to like it. I think so, too. They were a great bunch of guys. Yep. Of course, Andrew was. Uh, okay, I won't go there, right? Okay, so um, thank you for listening, and I hope you find it interesting. Again, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Proton Mail, Penny University at Proton Mail, and um, we will see you next episode. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Penny University. Please join us again for the next episode in this thought-provoking series. We hope you found us a podcast with value. Until next episode, be strong, wise, and safe.